Hey, everybody, welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky joined tonight uh, by Zach Cram from The uh, the Ringer. He writes about uh, Major League Baseball, which we're going to get into. A lot of Fernando Tatis Jr. Padres, uh, Dodgers talk, NL West. Also, great stuff on the NBA. And he's a researcher on binge mode. So we've got some nerdy questions to ask, uh, probably nerd out a little bit on the Marvel Universe and especially Star Wars. Well, when, when we reached out to Zach, by his own admission, he uh, when we when we said what are the sort of the things that you're into, he did list nerd culture. So th- this was us just repeating what Zach said. Thanks for having me. I would not stay up this far past my bedtime for any show. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, we did not realize Zach, by the way, for we didn't realize Zach is in the Midwestern time zone. Uh, and so we always appreciate when people are are staying up much later. It's like already tomorrow there. Uh, the don't future. tell us what happens. Yes, please don't <laughs> tell us what happens. Um so tons of stuff to uh, to get into tonight. And it starts like the game of the night. Uh, and you probably wouldn't have thought this earlier in the season, but the game of the night tonight was Utah in Philly. Uh, two teams that I guess I mean, you could argue, Zach, do you think they get the respect they deserve or are they still working for it? Because you've written about the Sixers a lot uh, over the course of the season. I think they're getting there given the last few seasons, I think, both teams are kind of in a holding pattern until the playoffs. Milwaukee also fits under this umbrella. Teams that we know can be good in the regular season. Maybe not this good, especially for Utah. We've never seen this before. But I think we're still kind of waiting to see, can the style succeed in the playoffs? Can Gobert stay on the court in every playoff round? And then the Sixers, kind of the same thing. This entire process and post-process era, they've still never made the conference finals. They came really close in that series against Toronto, but I think the fact that they're both number one seeds kind of puts a chip on their shoulder for both of them. Do you feel like right now, if you had to peg one of these teams going in a more, I don't know, for lack of a way, better way of putting it, a better direction in terms of proving their viability as a legit contender, like a team that gets to the finals, which one do you think it would be? I think the 76ers, just by virtue of playing in the Eastern Conference, where there are currently basically only three teams playing well right now. And I think let me let me rephrase it. Let me rephrase it then, just because you're correct. Being in on that side of the country gives you an automatic advantage. If they were both in the West, like in terms of just their their actual talent as a team, who do you think is more credible? Oh, I think Utah is definitely a better team. I think okay. even if you look at just the point differential right now, which especially this early in the season, I think is a better indicator of future performance than a team's actual record. Utah has the best point differential in the league right now. Philadelphia is only number three in point differential in the East. So even though they have a better record than Brooklyn and Milwaukee, I think their underlying performance isn't quite there. Philadelphia is still suffering from the same problem that plagued them in the playoffs against Toronto and has plagued them for a while. They just collapse when Joel Embiid sits. He is maybe the MVP so far this year, but right now the 76ers differential from when Embiid is on the court to when Embiid is off the court is the biggest for any player in the NBA right now. And I think until they figure out how to, how to maintain the score when Embiid is off, I'm not going to put them on the same level as these other contenders. But like the, the Embiid thing is, is, interesting to me too because like he says every year and tonight he was 
uh, pretty good. He had 40 points, 19 <laughs> rebounds, three assists, two blocks, uh, 10 of 13 from the line. He was a plus 10 in an eight point win. Uh, you know, you, you, he's one of these guys who every year says, this is the year I'm going to be serious. This is the year I'm going to get in shape. This is the year I'm going to do all the stuff that superstars do. And this actually does look like the year he's doing it. So what, how, how likely, what do you think a, a fully motivated Joel Embiid looks like in the playoffs? Cause I like, I'm not sure we've ever really seen it. I think, we kind of saw it to an extent in 2019 when they won a round and then went toe-to-toe Almost with the right. Raptors. The difference is I think even then he still had games where he would play really well for three quarters, but have that one quarter where he wasn't quite able to sustain that production. And this year we're not seeing that in part because if he's maybe feeling tired or his shot isn't on, he's getting to the rim and getting to the free throw line more than anyone else in the league. And I think that's such a, a factor that just helps you kind of quell against off nights that as long as he's able to maintain that level of production and just getting to the line, that's an extra 10 points a night. And I think that's kind of the differentiating factor for him between this year and other years is just that ability to get free points when he needs them. I think it's really interesting when you look at Embiid with the Sixers, like the idea that they're the one team in the league that's really trying to, you know, make a case for themselves, get to the finals being built around a big man that truly is a big man, like, mm-hmm. and doesn't really function in a lot of ways as anything other than a big man. Like, you know, Anthony Davis is a hybrid. Uh, Nikola Jokic obviously is, he's like a classic big man in a lot of ways, but he also can be used in so many different spots around the floor that he's got a little bit more of a hybrid type feel than like than Embiid, even though Embiid can be on the outside. Like, he, he's much more of, like a traditional big than I think any other team around the league that considers themselves contenders is trying to do like in a, in a very wing guard dominated league. Frankly, I think you can almost strip the contender aspect out of that. Who on a non-contender is a back to the basket big like Embiid is right now. I'm not really sure there is one. Zion Williamson was playing like one, except now New Orleans is using him as the ball handler in a dozen pick and rolls a game. I think even a big like DeAndre Ayton for Phoenix looks like Embiid. He looks like he could occupy the same role, but Phoenix isn't using him that way. And I think that's what makes Embiid so different. And I kind of enjoy that as someone who really enjoys stylistic diversity. I miss, you know, the grit and grind Grizzlies just because they were different from how other teams played. And I like that Philadelphia and Brooklyn and Milwaukee and Toronto, if, you know, those are four of the teams that come to the end in the East, all give really different styles. And so I'm glad that Embiid exists like this. I'm glad that Ben Simmons exists as just a different kind of tool than we see for any other. Just because I want to ask uh, directly related to something Zach just said, just because of the the age that you're at, you're in your mid twenties, which means that you grew up watching a lot of what's, you know, essentially this generation of basketball, like, you know, this style of basketball, very pace and space, very spread out three point uh, driven guard driven. And you were talking about that, you know, stylistic variety that you like to see just that comes with the Sixers. From from your perspective as somebody who grew up on this, do you feel like the NBA has enough variety to it, like to keep you interested as a fan? I think yes and no. I think the no 
is there are a lot of three pointers and I've written that this year more than ever before, just whether you're accurate or not from three really is dictating the results of games more than ever before. Like teams that are making at least 50% of their three pointers in a game are basically undefeated. And there's not much as a defense you can do to prevent that. But I think if you watch a lot of games, teams still approach how they get three pointers differently. If you watch Golden State versus Portland tonight, another great game. Curry and Lillard are very similar players, but they occupy different offensive roles in terms of how much they play off ball versus, you know, holding the ball more of the time. A term that the athletic Seth Part now uses that I like is heliocentrism, just revolving around one star. And I think a lot of teams that shoot three pointers still get there in different ways. So if you watch it closely, I think there are different facets to appreciate from a lot of these teams, but I think you're right. The end result is kind of homogenous. Well, you know, but there's still, yes, but there's still a little bit of it. Like the Lakers last year were not a particularly prolific three-point shooting team. They didn't take a ton relative to the rest of the league. They certainly didn't make a ton, certainly not until the, uh, like the, the bubble and the playoffs really. Um, and, you know, but they won by playing really good defense and going downhill and dominating in the paint and different, like not with classic post-up play, but like their, their thing looked different than, than a lot of other teams did. So there still is, is space, but I, I do think you're right that the diversity comes from what the stars look like. And like, it's like, there's, I love watching a team built around Nikola Jokic. Like that's a different thing than a team built around LeBron, which is a, built around Steph Curry and like there's the debate is always can this you have to have x to win this type of thing can't win or whatever and I, I just the NBA right now seems to be uh, like a great lab for what kind of stars can win that's it's part of the reason I'm pulling for Philly because I'd love to see Embiid and Ben Simmons be able to to do this because so much of it, oh, Ben's they can't do it in the playoffs because Ben Simmons can't shoot or Embiid is too much of this or that. So there is that kind of diversity that at least gives you an idea of, you know, what, uh, at least within the stars, it seems to me. And it's funny how quickly things change. It was just six years ago that if you were pulling for a team to win to prove that its style could succeed, you were pulling for the Warriors to prove to the old guys that actually, yes, a, a jump shooting team can win the NBA title. It's funny talking about like my age and the, the teams I grew up on. The first team I loved was the seven seconds or less Suns because mm -hmm. in that era, they stood out, even though right now they, they kind of set the stage for a lot of the offenses we see now. Right. You know, it's, it's crazy, you know, and this is apropos to what was going on today with uh, the, the reaction to Candace Parker and Shaquille O'Neal debating like pick and roll coverage on yesterday's TNT uh, post game. Like looking up that, those sevens or seven seconds or less era, like 2006, the year that Shaq won with Miami, the, the Suns led the league with something like, I don't know, 25 three-pointers a game, that wouldn't even qualify for last in 2021. <laughs> like, you would be, like, the 34th team in the league. I, I, for real. Like, it's it's crazy, though. You're behind the Rio Grande Valley Vipers or whoever's yeah. still playing You would right not now. qualify for last the way the league is run right now. Steve Nash is a 43% career three-point shooter, basically where Steph Curry is, and he took – less than half as many threes. I think he's talked in, in retrospect, oh, I, I should have taken more. And obviously we see with Brooklyn now, he's encouraging that as the coach, but it is 
one of my favorite pastimes is like to go back to the early aughts and look up the scores of those games, especially before Nash went to the Suns and they oh. they didn't uh, relax the defense rules and you would get like 69 to 65 playoff games. Amazing. The, the two things about that, like the, the, my giant takeaway from the last dance, other than Holy shit, I've kind of forgot how good Jordan, like young Jordan was, especially. Um, also, I forgot that Jordan's old enough that he started North Carolina with no three point line. <laughs> and then the third thing was like exactly what you're saying. You get to the, you know, these, clutch classic fourth quarter moments in Indiana and this and that and the score is 87 to 82 and it re reminded me I hated the watch I didn't watch the NBA in the 90s and stuff because it was kind of an unwatchable product like I think basketball is way more interesting and more exciting and more athletic and all this stuff now than it was you know even when you go back and watch those you know the Kobe Pow teams and how much everything is inside the three-point line. It's amazing to see how much they could still move the ball and do things. But I, I just feel like this, I feel like today is more exciting and interesting to watch. Maybe it's because I didn't grow up watching a ton of basketball in St. Louis as a kid. Frankly, I think it's just getting started, barring any rules changes, just because you think about who the best middle and high school players now are watching as they grow up. They're watching Steph Curry and James Harden and Damian Lillard. So as guys like Trey Young and LaMelo Ball come into the league, they are entering with skills that even it took a while for Curry to, to shoot as much as he did for the Warriors. And I think over the next five, 10 years, guys are going to enter the league saying, yeah, I can shoot eight three-pointers a game and take step backs from 35 feet. So I think we're really just seeing the first generation kind of molded on the style of basketball and could really change it even more. I'm kind of excited to see what happens. When you say change it more, like what comes to mind when you're envisioning basketball in 2031? I think one of the biggest kind of nuances of the three-point revolution, I just mentioned Trey Young and LaMelo Ball, but the, one of the biggest changes is at the four and five position with forwards and center shooting threes, even someone like Embiid who are talking about as the most traditional big in the league now is still taking a lot and making a lot of threes. So I think talking to like my colleagues at the ringer who pay more attention to draft prospects, they say basically all the top center prospects now can shoot threes. So I think when they enter the league, it just will require less of an adjustment period where a lot of the bigs now Someone like Brooke Lopez, who's now a stretch five in Milwaukee, took a lot of years as a post big mm -hmm. to then transform into what he is now. If you don't have that first decade where you're a post big and you just enter the league when you're at your most athletic and you're able to shoot like that, I think the game could get even more wide open potentially in the next decade. Yeah, and, and, and there are guys with the skills to do both. It's not like MB doesn't know how to play in the post. You know, and he's not taking quite as many. He's not as three happy this year as he has been. But like the, it's like to watch Carl Anthony Towns, you know, shoot at volume from three, run the floor. I was like, these people are freaks. Like, why would you want to to just be? I guess because your grand, your dad played that way. Like, why would you want to take a guy that skilled and that athletic and only make them do one thing? It, it I don't get it. It reminds me of like even at the levels of youth basketball when your best player does everything regardless of what his size is just because the skill differential is so big. But then the traditional path has been okay. As they get to like the high school level or even before that, 
it's a matter of pigeonholing them to, mm -hmm. to win, right? If you're six inches taller than everyone else, we'll just give you the ball back to the basket and you turn around and shoot. But I think if guys see Steph Curry and see Carl Anthony Towns and see Anthony Davis and say, I want to play like that, they'll be able to develop such a, a more diverse skill set, like you're saying. Brian, Brian, if memory serves, when we when we talked to Shea Cotton on this show, uh, you know, everyone knows him as the man child. Right. Uh, he was like this incredible, expected to be pro, uh, preps to pros prospect. He was supposed to be LeBron before LeBron existed. Didn't he say something like that happened to him in terms of like him being at the time so much? I don't remember, but I know it's very common. Yeah, uh, like and now he, today it's the opposite. Like you say, like right. guys just you know you're encouraged to to do all this other stuff, but they also too Zach. I think it's just like players, like you say, you're watching. Carl Anthony Towns. So if you're a big, you're like, oh, I can do that. And I can face up. I don't have to play with my back to the basket. That's boring. I can do all the same shit guards do. Um, and if you work <laughs> on your handle, you know, and you know, you get the benefit of being the best player on the team and having the ball in your hands and all, then you grow to be six, nine and you still have the handle. That's what happened to Anthony Davis. So, right. I mean, that's why these guys are the best athletes on the planet. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's kind of, uh, yeah, I, I think it's almost a self-perpetuating cycle that way because as more guys enter the league playing like that, then the generation behind them even more says, I want to play like those guys. And like, who is the the post big now that a young player is going to watch and say, I want to develop that way? Of course, like you said, guys still have post moves, but it's not like 10 or 20 years ago when you might grow up and say, oh, Shaq is really great. I might want to play like him. Even if you say, I want to play like Joel Embiid, first of all, Good luck, you know, developing his physicality. <laughs> right. But second of all, that still means shooting threes, and that still means being nimble, guarding on the perimeter. And I think it just makes for a much more athletic game, one to five. It's just insane to think that it's a person as large as Joel Embiid can move the way. Like this is why I tell people, like, if you can afford a ticket to get near an NBA court, you need to go do it because you don't understand what this is until you see these guys moving in real time up close. It also reminds me that uh, when we had Ben Taylor on uh, from thinking basketball he was breaking down we were talking about him and elijah Wan and the rockets that year you know they were spacing the floor with, i believe eight three-pointers <laughs> <laughs> to take advantage of elijah Wan's, uh the gravity of elijah Wan in the post um all right so after the after the utah game uh which was we saw in the laker game yesterday correct it was devin booker who got teed up real quick twice and was thrown out of the game. Tonight, it was uh, Donovan Mitchell who got thrown out in the overtime portion of the game against Utah. And afterwards, I have not seen this. You guys have seen the, the comments, so I'm excited to, to watch this from Donovan Mitchell. To win, things got a little chippy. Just how frustrating is this one for you? Um, first of all, I've got to you know, give 76ers credit. They played a hard, hard game. You know, Joel does what he does. And... You know, at the end of the day, they're, they're a good team. We competed, um, but it's, 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 it's tough, KK. Like, it's tough to, to go out there and see how we fight and compete and to have a game like that taken from us. And I'm never, ever one to, to, to blame a ref, to blame an official. I could say I, we could have done more, but this is getting out of hand. You know, there have been games like this that we've won. There have been games like this that we've, we've lost. But this whole refereeing stuff and the way we're, we're nice, we don't complain, we don't, like, we don't get frustrated. You know, we fight through things. And the fact that we just continually get, 
get screwed in a way by this. You know, like we, we won this game, in my personal opinion. You know, but like I said, I'm gonna give them credit. They won, whatever, cool. But like this is it's gonna it's a consistent thing. And you know, the question is, can we can we do it? Can we sustain it? Are we for real number one? Like, yeah, the hell we are. And it's getting it's getting ridiculous, KK. That this is this is what's happening. You know, what I mean, we have a whole second half of the season to go and get ready for. But like, I'm sick of it. To be honest with you, we all are. You know, and I think this is something that just it bite it, it eats me. It eats at me, man. And it's I don't I don't y'all know what it is. We all know what it is. But it's it's really getting out of hand. It's um, I, I actually don't entirely know what it is. The, I guess <laughs> the 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 theory here is that the league is conspiring to uh, hate the Jazz. Um, I, I I don't know, um, but I love we won this game. In my personal opinion. <laughs> Uh, I don't think they did, but <laughs> it, well, I, I love we won it in my first in my personal opinion, but I don't want to take anything away from those guys, except of course for the victory that they actually right. recorded officially. That's the but I don't want to take anything away from them. I just feel like we won. Other and than like, that, though, to, <laughs> to never, I mean, like people are. This is becoming. It was it was a problem two or three years ago for a totally different reason, which was. They were getting too many calls that were then being reversed on like you, you know the the next day, and they were issuing all the opinion. Where where is the NBA with referees and all this? And how much do you think is actually just related to the fact that now referees can hear literally everything these guys are saying all the time? When I think about referees and controversy, I kind of separate in my mind the in the moment calls. Is that a, a block or a charge? Is that a reaching foul? Because those are really difficult to make when you have guys moving this quickly, this big. It is really difficult to make those calls. And I think absent like very strong evidence, I'm not going to be upset about that. I don't mind Donovan Mitchell or Rudy Gobert being upset about that. They just competed hard and lost a close game. Let them blow off some steam if they want. But I think from the outside, I'm less concerned about the actual quality of those calls than I am the the calls that aren't specifically in the moment the ejections the technical fouls the the fact that you see this great lakers suns game and then all of a sudden one of the star players in that game is ejected seems kind of like the referee inserting himself where he shouldn't and i would much prefer a dozen ticky tack if he calls on block charges over an ejection of a star player when he doesn't belong. This happened in the playoffs last year. Kerseps Porzingis was ejected and kind of turned one of those Mavericks Clippers games in that awesome first round series. And I don't think that ejection was warranted in the slightest. And I think that's where the NBA has more of a, a problem. I'd also tie that into replay reviews. I think the fact that you get close to the end of a game and then have all this momentum building up and this tension in the air and then spend five minutes looking at 35 replay angles makes it difficult to maintain that tension. So yeah. I think solving those stoppages from the ejections to the replays is more of a concern and probably more doable because you're never going to make it so that a block charge call is easy, but you can instruct the refs to stop giving out technicals. You can alter the replay system a lot easier than that, I think. You know what's interesting, Brian? You just said that, uh, and we've talked about this before, and I know others have as well, like the idea of the refs can hear things more now from players that, that they wouldn't be able to in, in normally crowded arenas, and that makes them 
you know, more rabbit eared, more hyper aware of it. But I wonder also too, and this just occurred to me, how much of this actually could have to do with refs feeling like people watching these games, whether say like the 2000 people inside an arena or on TV can actually hear this stuff more. And it's like, no, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you show me up in a way that before I could maybe blow off or ignore because not everybody knows exactly what's being said. But now that I know people can actually hear this, like it really starts becoming like a respect issue or a pride issue. That was, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago in baseball when there was leaked audio of Aaron Boone reaming out the, oh, right. the home plate ump. Yeah. And everyone said, oh, that was so cool to see how the manager actually interacts with the umpire. But then MLB said, we don't actually want this that often unless it's tightly controlled because we don't want this audio out there. It's embarrassing to our umpires. So I think there might be something to that idea. I'd be interested. This would never happen unless you get like uh, an anonymous uh, truth serum sort of thing. But right. I'd be curious to know if that's a possibility. So I, oh, I, just think, I think we're all so much better off. Andy, you tweeted about this the other day, like the amount of shit that we get to see and hear and learn now, like every single time Russell Westbrook drives, it finishes with God damn. Every, every single one. time, every time it's God damn it. And, God and damn. And Make those like miss. individual quirks are, are really fun. Think of yeah. Sheed yelling ball don't lie or well, Mello yelling whenever he gets a rebound. Those are, are fun quirks about oh, some of our favorite. I, I like you know what you know which one I like a lot is um hell no when somebody's taking a shot that the other team doesn't the think. The disrespect. Well, we learned actually, Brian and I, because we we covered the Kobe Powell teams, you know, that went back to back, went to three straight finals. And because we were at all of these home games over and over and over, like I learned, I think Brian will remember this, every time Kobe drove to the basket, one in contact, it would be, hey, Powell, every time he drove to the basket, one in contract, gun in contact, it'd be, ah, Lamar Odom, every time he drove, one in contract was, oh, like, like you would learn, it, you would learn every single tick these guys had or every single mechanism that they were trying to use to get the refs on their side. But now just it's all of it. You also came up with something, Zach, you know, like the, the truth serum concept. I would love to have truth serum after every game. Like these guys <laughs> had to take truth serum and then answer our stupid questions. That would be amazing. Well, I mean, even just for the referees, which is what I was thinking of is you get these really, uh, kind of satin, uh, sanitized two-minute reports and these ref statements that basically say, yes, we agree with the call that was made. And I'm not sure how much we're really learning from those. The, the next day, two-minute reports, I guess we learn more a little bit. But I don't know what this is going to say about, about the Utah-Philadelphia game, for instance. Oh, great. The, the referees afterwards, you know, in the, in the pool, truth serum. Yeah, my colleague is a dipshit. He gets these calls wrong all the time. <laughs> I, I, I can't stand working with him. Like, oh my God, that guy is a snowflake. You can't say a word to him without getting teed up. Frankly, it's embarrassing. Like that that would be fantastic. Like really just learn what all these guys think. I was uh, a ref for intramural games in college. And the only times I ever was reprimanded by my supervisor was because he said I didn't give out enough technical fouls. He said I needed to do that more to, to keep the game under control. And I said, like, I... I don't want to call technical fouls on these guys. I don't want to, to influence the game in that way. And I think I, I would prefer the NBA refs, of course, in a completely different situation to kind of 
occupy that same mindset and say, do we really need to eject Devin Booker right here? Like in the that's, third quarter. The thing, it's, yeah. it's like, it's like, there's, it's, it's time. It's, it's like the league ne- needs to tell these guys, this is a national tele televised game. It short of him coming up and like slapping you with a white glove, like do not throw Devin Booker out on a, for a technical, like for a, for a language technical, do not do that. Like you can't. And that's where I think you say you want, Oh, everyone should be, should be refereed equally. And I agree with that in principle, but in practice, I, and probably a lot uh, of viewers get more upset when Devin Booker is ejected from that game than if a reserve had been ejected from that game. Absolutely. So I think, I think that's where understanding the context actually is useful for, for the yes. referee. Let the star get away with a little bit more. He deserves right. it. Like LeBron should be able to like MF, you know, motherfucker, a referee <laughs> right up to the point where it's just like literally too much. Anthony Davis, all these like if you've made four all star teams or five, like there should be rules about this kind of stuff. And, you know, not every player gets treated on okay. the same on every team. It should be the same way on the floor. Well, this adds an interesting wrinkle, by the way, to a piece that Zach recently wrote about Mike Conley and the idea of whether or not he is the best you know, the best active player who's never made an all-star team, um, but could possibly end up the best player, period, to never make an all-star team. And you went through uh, active players, non-active players. Like this could be, if we're looking for the thing that, you know, that gives Mike Conley that edge, like finally he can discover the way to make an all-star team. It's the ability to MF these guys with impunity. Like, I- Like if he can finally figure out that formula, I like that idea, kind of like a lifeline, maybe, where every all star, every all star game on your resume is like one extra lifeline you get. So if I have three, three, uh, three all stars on my resume, then maybe I would have to get the equivalent of five technical fouls before I get ejected. That's a concept they should explore. Or you can pick somebody like on your team, like LeBron gets his second technical. He can look at Alfonso McKinney and tell him to go take a shower. <laughs> Kind of the reverse of when like someone gets injured and the opposing team gets to pick who shoots the free throws. Exactly. I just said like rules like that. Like I'm okay with it. I'm like, and this this gets to the all-star thing. Like, I'm okay with Mike Conley, who I really wanted to see make the team. And who knows, he might still because you know, Kawhi Leonard might, you know, that back injury might keep him out. And you know, who knows what's gonna happen with uh, two or three other different players ar- around the league before Sunday rolls around. But like Mike Conley, I'm okay with him taking somebody else's spot because he deserves to make an all-star team. Like how, how dogmatic are you? You wrote the whole thing about is, you know, is Conley the best player ever to not make a team? How dogmatic are you about this idea of like always the best player in this half of the season and so on and so on and so forth? So I actually think Conley deserved to make it just by his play this half of the season playing so well for Utah and his advanced metrics are off the charts. Right. I also think that this is where we're talking about the league has to remember that that this is an entertainment product. And when when it applies to the all-star game, I think that goes even beyond Conley to something like, okay, Chris Paul deserved to make the team this year. I think Chris Paul, even if you don't like put on his resume that every season from now on is an all-star appearance, unless he earns it, I think he should be able to play in the All-Star game forever because he just makes it more fun with his ability to pass everyone the same way 
that that was the case for John Stockton. It's like if you win a Masters, you get to play in every Masters until you die. Yeah, there should be some sort of. I, they actually did this for I think Wade and Nowitzki a couple of years ago, their final seasons. Mm-hmm. But acknowledging that there are like a couple point guards who are just extraordinarily fun and deserve to be in every All Star game because they make that more fun. And I think it, it's this kind of thing that yeah, it's small and doesn't matter that much, but it's just a reminder that this is an entertainment product and is important for the viewers to, to maximize that. Go ahead, Andy. I I was just going to say your piece reminded me of something I felt for a while. I've talked about this before. They should get rid of the West and East distinctions Mm -hmm. for the all-star game. Just bring in the players that are going to make it the most fun because this is just a glorified exhibition and showcase. And if you want to have a glorified exhibition and showcase, showcase the most fun. Like, frankly, Make people forget that the East even exists. <laughs> Seriously, why Why remind them? Looking at the list of point guards who have made it over Conley over the last decade during his best seasons, it's like, yeah, I kind of understand why he hasn't made it now because it's Curry and Lillard and Westbrook and Harden. And yeah, Conley's a great player, but is he better and more famous than those guys? Probably not. Whereas over the same span, Jeff Teague made it in the East, D'Angelo Russell made it in the East. And that's not to take anything away from them. They're all-stars and they deserve it. But I imagine Conley would have a couple all-stars on his resume if Memphis, which, by the way, is in the eastern half of the country, had been in in the Eastern Conference that time. And like you say, the fact that they're drafting teams now and it's not even East versus West, I'm not sure why that conference split for the roster persists. That's the part that I think is really – because I love that they pick teams, although I think they should do it live on television. Um, if you're going to do it, really get the most out of it. But as long as you're doing this, there you're right. There's no reason to have conferences for this. It's stupid. And, yeah, like the fact that you have – what is it? Team LeBron versus Team Durant this year, and you're going to mix up the conference anyway. I'm not sure anybody would be counting and saying, oh, Conley's there, so that's 13 Western players split between these two teams. It's just, you know, that's silly. Yeah, I just, you, you want to generate, I mean, you want to generate the most fun possible, but also too, like for somebody like Mike Conley or, you know, this was something Brian and I dealt with when we were covering Lamar Odom and there, there was a year, it was the year that he won six man of the year. There was, there had been like a push for him to make an all-star team. And he ended up not making it. Like, Pau Gasol actually made it that year. And that particular year, both of us actually thought Lamar deserved it over Pau. But Lamar was really disappointed. Like, I mean, you know, he he was a good sport about the whole thing. He was classic because that's just how Lamar was. But, like, this is one of those things that, like, you only get, unless you are a superstar, you only get the opportunity to make this happen so many times. And, you know, for for guys like LeBron, I'm sure if you, you know, if you, I mean, actually, I don't even have to ask him. He said this thing is a pain <laughs> in the ass for him. Like, he doesn't really want to go. He's made it clear. Made like, it's, clear. Yeah. But for somebody like Lamar or, you know, Mike Conley or Jason Terry, who was high up on the list of your thing, like, even just making it one time to be able to say that they were an all-star, I'm sure would actually mean a lot to them, especially if they, if they knew that they earned it that year, that it wasn't just like a token thing. Yeah, I think that earning is important, and that applies to Conley this year. I was not advocating for Conley to make the All-Star team last year because he wasn't playing well. He was having difficulty adjusting to his first season outside Memphis, and you don't just give it to a guy, but I think using it as sort of a tiebreaker 
I thought Conley should have made it this year anyway, but even if he was on the fence, I think that can nudge a guy forward because at some point, all these guys have such similar resumes anyway, and it's really hard to distinguish between them, especially a season like this one where guys are missing games and how do you balance someone who maybe has slightly better statistics, but a few uh, games missed because of COVID protocols. And it's kind of a mess all around anyway that I would have been perfect perfectly fine if they used it as a tiebreaker, especially once Anthony Davis was out and you were using it as a replacement spot. He would have been a perfect fit for that, I think, to take nothing away from Devin Booker, uh, to quote LeBron, the most disrespected player in the league, including, I guess, coming full circle by the refs last night. <laughs> but like, so you would you would just keep Booker off or who, all things being equal, would you put Booker in over Paul? Or... I, I think I would have put Paul over Booker. I think he's the leader of that team. And it, uh, I think it's not necessarily fair. Like I would put Booker over a guy or two in the Eastern Conference. But like we're saying, if you're limited to 12 guys, and that's the other thing. Why, why yeah. is it still limited to 12 guys when active rosters now are above that? I wrote in my piece that you talked about, about how all-star roster sizes have remained the same even as the league has expanded. So just by virtue of the number of teams and players in the league now, it's harder to stand out and make an all-star team. So I think they should expand to 13 or 15. And yes, you would still have arguments about the 15th guy as opposed to the 12th guy, but that would ease the arguments for the guys at the top. Thank you. Because I mean, I, I would imagine the biggest reason the league would be reluctant to expand it from 12 to 15 is they'd worry that we wouldn't have these debates. And these debates are the lifeblood of coverage. Like, all Adam Silver needs to do is spend five minutes on NBA Twitter. I can promise you we are not going to stop arguing. Like like we, asked, we stopped arguing about bubble teams when the NCAA went from 64 to 68. <laughs> you can expand the roster to 25 players per side. I promise you there will still be people arguing about this shit all day. It's what we do. People argue every year about the snubs from the the rookie sophomore game. So yes, I, I think we'll be able to find some arguments for. I saw that like on NBA TV today, and I think it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but they were having a sort of mini debate about whether or not Sadiq Bay was unfairly snubbed from the All Star or from the uh, the the game the the soft, rookie sophomore game that they're not even playing. It's just being named to it. <laughs> I'm not sure, like, does that even show up on your basketball reference page? I don't even know. It's such a, a limited no, honor so. compared to everything else. I'm not even sure you get, like, the bumper sticker they send you for, like, when you win player of the month. Like, they, I think they, it's like my son was player of the month in the NBA. Like, they, like the bumper stickers that you see from elementary school. Um, I, So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's – I, Andy and I are pretty indifferent about a lot of these. I mean, we're not big all-star game people. But for somebody like Conley – it becomes important because these are like for guys who may not win a title, all this like how many all-star teams you make ends up influencing. Are you a hall of famer? Are you not like it can matter probably more than it should. And maybe hopefully going forward, it won't matter as much, but as long as we're going to treat these things as important, whether or not you make these teams, you got to figure out ways to get more guys. Sometimes on. It affects, it affects bonuses. I mean, it can actually affect your money. And, and that's why I think, you know, it does need to be taken seriously for that legacy purpose not just handing out token appearances to to guys who don't deserve it but like i say i think if you're on the cusp to be able to use it as a tiebreaker is i think valuable just in the same way that a lot of voters will use team record as a tiebreaker i don't see it it being that different when you need something to differentiate between the final candidates 
Um, yeah, for sure. All right. So we, I want to get to Fernando Tatis Jr. before we're done because you've written about him and you, he is, I, I think a monumentally important figure for baseball going forward. So we wanted to get to that before we're done, but we also want to talk a little bit of nerd stuff. And I, the thing that I, cause you are a researcher at binge mode, which is like the ultimate nerd deep dive, like intense thing into whether it's, you guys have done, give me the sort of the list. You've done Star Wars, you've done Harry Potter, you've done Marvel. What else? What am I missing? Game of Thrones. Yes. Game of Thrones, the big one. Yeah. Um, let's do let's start with Star Wars. That universe, like if people don't remember, I forget the exact number of TV shows that Disney Plus is going to be putting out over the next few years around the Star Wars universe, animated and and live action. But it's something like 20, isn't it? It's it's an astronomically large number. I think it's supposed to be around 10 Star Wars and 10 Marvel. So about 20. Oh, maybe, I had, okay, maybe I'm combining the two. All right. Why do these things, why does Star Wars and then to that degree Marvel, why do these things translate to television so well? Because the Star Wars TV series, whether you're talking Mandalorian, my kids like Clone Wars, it's really well done and all these other things, generally speaking, are way better than the movies. <laughs> It, that's it is funny when you think about how Star Wars is the most important probably movie franchise in the country and of the the nine core movies maybe like four or five of them are good it's not the maybe. best hit rate maybe yeah. I wh which ones do you think are good like legit good I think I would say all the original three are good I was a huge last Jedi fan which you know the internet might feel differently uh <laughs> and I think Force Awakens, I really liked when it came out, and probably because it was the first good Star Wars movie of my lifetime. Uh, but then on retrospect, in viewing it again, I see a lot more flaws. Uh, but I, I think the point you make about the television series is fascinating because I think I think one of the reasons for all of these universes, so to speak, is that it just gives you it gives you ways to explore the world in more detail. And what I mean by that is in the Star Wars movies, take the original trilogy, you basically went in the entire first movie to a couple different planets. If you take the Mandalorian, you can go to a planet every episode. And I think that allows you to, to delve into these rich worlds more. And I think a lot of the fandom on the internet is devoted to exploring these worlds. If you look at like the Star Wars Wikipedia, called Wikipedia, of course, because that's a great pun. It, they so have uh, all of the, the uh, canon universes cataloged. They have the expanded universe cataloged. And I think people just love exploring these worlds so much and developing the new details that weren't there in 1977. But the fact that the Mandalorian can combine the traditional like Easter eggs that excite fans, but while also showing new things is partly why the show succeeds so much. But, you know, I hate, I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off. I don't follow any of that stuff. Like I don't, I don't get deep into the Wikipedia. I don't know the worlds. I don't know, <laughs> but it's just, they're better. Like I, I to my list start the original, you know, uh, new hope is good. Empire is great. Return of the Jedi is half of a good movie. And yes. I think, I think rogue one is excellent. Oh, I, I love Rogue One. I wasn't counting that because I was just thinking about the core nine. I love Rogue One. Yeah, I think Rogue yeah. One is great. Technically and... speaking, the Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, but I think that comment actually explains why 
this show is so successful because you can say, well, I don't follow any of this stuff, but I still enjoy the show probably because I don't know the action is cool and baby Yoda is fun. And then you have the binge mode audience that loves the Easter egg stuff. And the fact that they're able to simultaneously cater to both of those groups is I think a, what makes it successful and B why they're expanding it so much because they can keep doing that repetitively, iteratively over and over again. And you don't have, you don't have to cram it all into one movie. Like, I think this is part of the, the problem in my kids. I've seen all the Marvel movies because my kids watch them over and over again. And they're, they're generally good, but they often get very overstuffed because I think there's this tendency to feel like you have to put every character as many as you possibly can in every movie, which takes a movie that should be an hour and 40 minutes and makes it age of Ultron, which is like four hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you get uh, on the TV side, you also have the variability to be able to play with episode lengths. Like you're talking about, you can have a 30 minute episode followed by an hour long episode followed by another 30 minute episode. You kind of have the flexibility to fit the length to the story as opposed to having to fit the story to the length. The, the Easter thing, Easter egg thing that you just mentioned that I, that I thought, I think that's interesting because, and may, maybe this is, I guess, a byproduct of, you know, I watch all these movies. I, you know, Marvel more than the Star Wars newer stuff, generally like them, but I honestly don't give a shit about any of the Easter egg stuff. And sometimes I feel like the insertion of the Easter eggs and sort of like the, frankly obsession or uh, compulsion with making sure that's in there as a fan service thing can sometimes get in the way of the actual storytelling itself but it's clearly something that fans love from the research that you've done or just you know connecting with like binge mode uh, audience and this general sort of world is that something that you think they've sort of grown to expect or maybe generationally have grown to expect? Because again, like I, I want to see all these movies and generally do, but that part of it never means anything to me. And like sometimes to be honest, like I, I, I get annoyed when they start getting thrown in there. Yeah. I think in part it's nostalgic and importantly, nostalgic for both a lot of viewers who think, Oh, I, I remember watching that when I was a kid, but also for the creators, if you think about the age of the creators of the new Star Wars shows, for instance, they grew up on the original trilogy. So it's kind of like, you know, when I was a kid playing with action figures or sports cards and saying like, oh, you know, I can make stories out of these. Well, imagine if you had $200 million to do that, you would probably insert some references to those original action figures too. And I think the fact that they're able to do that for the most part without taking away from the story. I agree. I think like to use the Mandalorian as an example, there was one episode and I think the first season when they just went back to Tatooine because, Oh, Hey, that's where Luke Skywalker grew up. Okay. And that was one of the weaker episodes that, because that it actually, overran the story. I, I didn't, I, I will admit I have not seen season two of the Mandalorian. I've heard, I've heard from a lot of people that season two was better than season one. Mm -hmm. Season one for me started out, really cool for like the first couple episodes. And then to be honest, it felt like a travelogue of the galaxy. Like, like I, I felt like I was with uh, like a Boba Fett travel agent, just like going around from place to place. Cause like half the time I'm like, I don't even understand why you went to this planet. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't get what you're doing. Like just seems like you're driving around like 
having to fix your ship, probably because you're overusing it, driving to different places for no particular reason. Like, and you're supposed to be hiding Yoda, but it seems like you're flying all over the place with them. Like, I, I didn't, I didn't understand exactly what they were doing with that. I think I'll, I think one of the difficulties that both the Star Wars shows and the Marvel shows will face going forward is finding the balance between making the show itself interesting as its own product versus tying it into the wider universe. Yes. You know, the fact that the yes. Marvel shows now will be tying into the movies, I think you will get that same tension of how much do we make this an episode of uh, an adventure of the week episode versus incorporating these other characters from the wider Star Wars or Mar Marvel universes. You're seeing the same tension in the WandaVision show right now, the, the first Marvel offering, which is it started out as a very contained product. And then as the season has progressed, has kind of drawn in these outside universe influences. And I think for the most part, the, the show has succeeded in balancing those two demands, but will Marvel and will Star Wars, or so Disney overall, will every show be able to maintain that balance successfully? Probably not. So what happens right. when the first show fails at that effort? Does that kind of sour people on the larger project? Well, it's I think that goes back to why Rogue One is good is because for the especially by the movie standard, it's like you only have there's there are only a few rules in that movie that needed to be followed. It needed to end on the transport so that the plans get there so they you can have you know episode four. So that needs to happen, and then everyone has to die. Everyone has because, to die. <laughs> <laughs> those are the only things that have to happen in this movie because otherwise we're going to be wondering where the hell were these people in the other movies? They all have to die. So if you can accomplish those two things, you can kind of do whatever you want. You have all of these characters that as long as you're willing to kill them at the end, um, you can, you can create a, a universe. You don't have to have Jedis. You don't have to have this. You don't have to have that. And I also think that's what's successful about the Mandalorian in a lot of ways is even with sort of Boba Fett, when I was sort of confused as to how he got out of that pit and a friend of mine explained it to me. Um, but like, you know, there's a lot going on there where you don't have to include I don't know Luke Skywalker until they well, do, the, but the like, thing with, with Boba Fett is that was included to set up a Boba, a Boba Fett show. And I think that's where, like, at some point it is going mm -hmm. to it is going right. to be holding up so much on its back. Does it sag under its own weight? I didn't love the Boba Fett inclusion in The Mandalorian, but I'll say you mentioned Rogue One. And I am not a, a huge Easter egg person, particularly... Like I'm not the the kind of person who will seek out those 19 Easter eggs you might have missed in X <laughs> episode piece. Uh, those are great SEO on those pieces, but I don't seek those out yet. At the same time, in Rogue One, when Darth Vader shows up, I was like, "Oh my god!" in the theater. So you know, I'm a sucker too, I guess. There's a whole section at BuzzFeed that's dedicated to that. <laughs> you know, 20 Easter eggs you missed in this episode of Wandavision. They're useful. That, you know, yeah. if, if I'm writing about it or doing research for the podcast, it's useful. And I'm, I'm glad other people who really know the comics well are doing them. It's just not like I like I said, or like like you said, it's not my favorite way of consuming that content. What's the stuff that you're looking forward to most, either with the future Star Wars content, future right. Marvel? Um, I mean, it was either at the end of 2020 or beginning 2021. There was that massive Disney Plus announcement where they had like, I don't know, like two billion yeah, 
assets from all these right. different properties. Like, what what do you think is actually going to be the coolest, or you're just most curious to see how they do it? I'm most interested in seeing how the weird stuff translates. Yes. I think the advantage of having a lot of different TV shows running at once is you can probably afford to experiment with one or two because if one falters, if you have three others that are really good, then you can afford to take more risks. So I'm excited to see That's, the the experimentation. What's, what's weird? What are the weird ones? Oh gosh. So I think there are a couple Star Wars ones that are supposed to be so so most of the Star Wars shows they announced are kind of around the same time frame as the original trilogy or the new trilogy, kind of within the 30-year span in which most of the Star Wars universe has taken place so far. And I believe there's one show that's supposed to happen that's like, you know, 10,000 years in the past. And seeing how they differentiate that from the Star Wars we know, I think will be really interesting. On the Marvel side, frankly, uh, understanding from like the, the heavier comic book readers at The Ringer that a couple of the superheroes they announced are much newer. So if you think about like, you know, Captain America has been around for almost a hundred years at this point in the comic books. And they have some other superheroes they've announced, like Miss Marvel, I think is one who is like a young girl who was only introduced in the comics canon within the last couple decades. So a much more modern look at superheroism kind of, you know, within the universe, she grew up knowing that superheroes already existed. And I'm kind of interested in how that intergenerational play goes. I mean, it's fun that I I was going to say, it's fun that you said the, the weird factor, because I, I think I was picturing the Mandalorian to end up weirder than it actually was, or like relative to some of the other stuff, Ant-Man or Ragnarok, especially are definitely the quirkier otter ones. And Ragnarok is probably my favorite MCU movie. Ragnarok is awesome. Ragnarok is fantastic. Or like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy is definitely weirder than some of the other ones. Like that, I think stuff like that is actually really necessary to, in a lot of ways, just to keep the creativity of it all going. Like I understand these things are massively expensive they are propping up studios at this point they are propping up in a lot of ways like the future of movie theaters and things like that i I recognize there's a lot on the line but like you know in thinking about stuff we're going to ask you today like it reminded me of just iron man began with robert downey jr who favreau had to fight so hard to cast in that role because he was basically uninsurable and like a only a few years removed from prison and all that stuff. Like Downey was considered such a weird choice. And I'm not saying that it couldn't have worked without Downey, but the whole thing would have been way, way different without him. And like it began with some weirdness. There's a concept called desirable difficulties in psychology. And I think that's kind of where this fits in of when Marvel started the MCU, they didn't have the rights to some of their most, popular characters they didn't have the rights to spider-man yeah or the x-men or the fantastic four and i think in a world in which they did maybe they try to launch the project with spider-man or some of these other characters iron man you know has been around forever but i don't think he was an a-list comic book character until the movies came out and i'm sure for this new generation he is now but i think the fact that they had to adjust to having some of these weird characters, you mentioned guardians of the galaxy who were, I don't know, a D list comic book I, character I, before I that. I didn't even know it was a comic book. Yeah. Aside from Marvel. 
And like, the I fact that they that had to choose from these characters, I think, allowed them to take more risks early on. And I hope that, like, as they've had these multi-billion dollar movies and are now the bi the biggest and most successful franchise in Hollywood history that they don't lose what made that special early on and keep taking risks. Um, before we let you go, I want to just, I want to have a quick conversation about Fernando Tatis Jr. And we can just do it while we watch. We don't have to hear it. But we can just watch Fernando Tatis do really cool shit. Um, so we'll just watch that while this happens. You wrote. We're gonna take uh, down your banner. No offense. It's just so people can see. Right. You wrote a great story about Tatis after he he signed that three hundred forty million dollar deal with the Padres, that huge fourteen year extension. Um, how important is he to the future of baseball of making baseball seem cool again to people? To the extent that any one person can be, I think he's the most important. Uh, Mike Trout is the best player in the game, but he hasn't shown much interest in necessarily being the face and all power to him. He seems to enjoy his life just hitting a lot of home runs and enjoying the weather and watching Eagles games. And that seems like a great life if you can get it. But Tatis, I think, has displayed both with his on-field enthusiasm and with things like uh, becoming the cover athlete for the the new MLB video game that he is interested in having it all basically. And he has the talent for it. I mentioned in my piece that among players through his young age, it's basically Tatis and Trout and a bunch of Hall of Famers. And he's a shortstop hitting that well. So he certainly has the talent for it. And now he has the chance to be the kind of one town superstar by signing this extension. I saw some people say like, oh, this this isn't a good thing because he will never now go to the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Red Sox. But I think it's easy enough to watch basically any team's games now that that doesn't really matter. I'd also point to the fact that like the coolest baseball player of the last half century was Ken Griffey Jr. who played in Seattle for, for the entire span of his career when he was the coolest player. So I don't think that's as prohibitive as some people make it out to be. And if you look at the Padres roster, I think for the, the next few years, they're going to be neck and neck with the Dodgers as the most fun rivalry in baseball. And that can only be good for the game. Yeah. There's you, you talked before um, earlier about just Mike Trout and, you know, the reluctance to show off personality and, you know, baseball looking for a player like that. And I think there is a lot of hope that Tatis can be that guy. And he certainly if no, you know, he is seems wired for that sort of thing. But I wonder too, especially as football and basketball have taken so much prominence, at least in America, you know, among the the big four, like part of the issue you may have in baseball with creating stars is just the relative limitations that one player can have towards winning, you know, versus the way, you know, a lot of players can have a direct control in the NBA or in the NFL, it's always going to go back to quarterbacks. And like the, that, that type of direct control is something that is always marketable. Like you can be an incredible, incredible baseball player. It doesn't change the fact that you'll get, if you're lucky, you'll bat five times. You'll 95% of the balls don't get hit towards mm -hmm. you. Like there's a lot of time spent in baseball standing around doing nothing. And that that can be difficult with promoting stars and creating stars. I think October is so important there because October is really 
the only time when everyone's watching the same game at once. Baseball is such a localized sport. You watch your own team every night. And I think that's why the fact that the Padres are good is so important here. The problem with Trout's celebrity is, is partly his own personal feelings about it, I think, but also just the fact that the Angels haven't won. And if the Angels were in the playoffs every year, I bet he would be a bigger star whether he wanted it or not. That's why Derek Jeter it was so famous. He played in New York, sure, but he also was on a World Series team for the first half of his career, basically. So I think the Padres being this good is really important, and their GM is the most aggressive GM in the game. They made so many improvements this winter to a team that was already quite good and very young and has a lot of prospects still on the way that I think that's one of the advantages Tatis has over maybe some other candidates for this role. The Padres are going to be good. So he'll be playing in October and be exciting for a lot of fans at once. Do you think it matters that he's, you know, uh, you know, a guy with a, you know, a Latin name, he plays with an, a way that, you know, you, you, you put clips up and, you know, he's, Tagged up from third and scored from home on a on a pop up to the second baseman. I think it was. Um, he had some just epic bat flips, uh, bat flips in the playoffs last year. Like stuff that doesn't follow the unwritten rules of baseball and all that kind of stuff. How much do you think that helps with younger people, but also might meet resistance with sort of the baseball old guard that it seems so protective of all the bullshit that I think, frankly, holds baseball back. I was almost pleasantly surprised last year when there was the brouhaha over Tati swinging at a 3-0 pitch, which wasn't even an unwritten rule I knew existed. And I think what happened was, uh, I believe it was Texas they were playing. Texas got upset that day. And then basically all of the discourse said Texas was wrong. You didn't have the spate of old analysts saying, no, actually, Tatis was disrespecting the game. I think that was a turning point in my understanding of where the game is headed now. Frankly, I think the game could use more players like that, more excitement, more bat flips. And MLB is showing that with its let the, let the kids play marketing. I think almost the entire generation of young 20-something superstars plays that way. Ronald Acuna uh, admires his home runs. Juan Soto has his little like antagonistic uh, step toward the pitcher when he takes a pitch. And you have Tatis. And I think the fact that basically the entire young generation is playing this way means we'll be seeing it more and more accepted going forward because that's where all the best players are going to be. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> just like, you know, I know the Cardinals got mad at him in the playoffs. Andy and I, again, both from St. Louis. Um, we, you know, big fans of the Cardinals, still root for all that. The Cardinals are not fun. The Cardinals as an organization are not fun. They don't believe in fun. They don't believe in flipping bats. They don't believe in any of the things that Although would make back baseball when they, more appealing. There was a period where their shortstop literally would do a backflip mm -hmm. on the way to uh, the field, on the way to his spot, on the Only field. Only on opening Ozzie day, though. Right, but Ozzie Smith became known for doing a damn backflip. I mean, a backflip, not a backflip, a backflip. And that was widely accepted and again celebrated it just it's weird where these cultural shifts end up happening i mean look that that 82 team that won the world series they were incredibly fun i mean that was just an incredible incredibly entertaining era of baseball to watch half that team was let's just say parting a lot and i and, think part of it is about 
reputation. It's kind of yeah. a catch-22, but if Ozzy hadn't been Ozzy, then he probably wouldn't have been allowed to do the backflips. And the same is probably true of Tatis. The fact that he's so good kind of lets him get away with that and makes it more accepted. You okay, Brian? Yeah, sorry. I was my, my thing came unplugged. Um, last, I just have one more question. I don't know if we were at a pause, natural pause. How close are the Padres to the Dodgers? I think they're extraordinarily close. I would say, I don't know what the, the odds say right now, but 60-40, which in wow. a sample size of one is really close. I think a lot of it will probably Damn. just come down to which team can stay healthy. The Dodgers, because of their, uh, I think, ability to spend and the depth they've just built up over many years, have more in reserve if guys get injured. They have like nine deep, really good starting pitchers. But if you just take the one to 25 rosters right now, I would take the Dodgers by a hair. It's, I, I think they're the two best teams in baseball right now, and it's not particularly. But that, that puts you in a little bit of an outlier stat. I mean, most people think the Padres are good, but that there's still a pretty sizable gap between, or decent sized gap, I should say, between them and the Dodgers. So are you, you're, are, do you consider yourself more uh, Padres forward than, than other people? I was big on the Padres last year, actually. So I, <laughs> I, got, I got it early. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I just looked, according to the Fangraphs playoff, we don't odds, judge. it says they're separated by three games right now, which over 162 games, preseason projections, that's pretty close. And I think the, the advantage that San Diego has is they also have really good prospects and they're willing to, to build up kind of the the top tier talent that you need to take on the Dodgers. It's been a fun arms race because the Dodgers yeah. obviously entered the offseason better. So the Padres said, okay, we'll trade for Darvish and Snell on the same day. And the Dodgers said, okay, then we'll sign Trevor Bauer and re-sign Justin Turner. And so now the Padres said, you know, okay, we'll re-sign Jerickson Profar, which He's not on the same level, but just kind of gives them the depth that the Dodgers have one to 25. And I think the Padres are almost using the Dodgers as a model, which is always fun. It reminds me of the Yankees Red Sox series of the early 2000s when they had easily the best rivalry in the sport. Um, all right, Zach Cram, uh, you are it is now one o'clock in the morning. Uh, where you are, we're going to let you go. Um, <laughs> you have done your service to this show. Go back into the wild. We're releasing you. <laughs> um, we have done your, you've done your service to the show. We really appreciate it. you. Check out all of Zach's stuff um, at The Ringer. He writes about uh, Major League Baseball. He writes about the NBA and does great work on all that stuff. And then go listen to Binge Mode because he's doing all this, all the real work, while uh, you know the these frontliners at The Ringer get all the credit. Um, all, all they do is you know record everything and read everything and yeah no work at all no well, you're 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 the guy behind the guy <laughs> that's the way it works i appreciate the time man it was great meeting you. it's fun you. it was good to meet you thanks so much for having me all right uh tomorrow uh trayvon edwards is going to yes. join us that'll be a lot of fun we'll do a lot of nba and get in some cultural stuff uh as well steve mason on Friday, uh, we're we're going to mock him because he has to pre-tape, even yes. though he is on the West Coast. Because ten o'clock is too late for him because he's on an a old Friday. Person. On a night. Friday, he is an old, Friday. old, old man. Yes, um, yeah. All right, thanks again to Zach. We'll see everybody tomorrow. Donkey Needle on. <laughs>